0: Revelation chapter 2 That starts to get a bit interesting doesn't it? Let's see To the messenger of the gathering in Ephesus write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the gatherings. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the messenger of the gathering in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the gatherings. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the messenger of the gathering in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives Nevertheless, I have a few things against you You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam Who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the gatherings. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To the messenger of the gathering in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, but she is unwilling so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways I will strike her children dead then all the gatherings will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the gatherings.
1: Let's uh, just pray, shall we? Father, thank you for uh, your word and thank you that we can sing joyfully to you as well. We pray now that as we um, focus on Revelation chapter 2, that you would, uh, by your spirit, be uh, opening our minds and our hearts, helping us to understand and helping us to obey. And we pray these things all in the name of our precious Saviour Jesus. Amen. To the messenger of the church in Port Macquarie write, these are the words of him who holds the keys to paradise, to true life and to true rest. I know of your commitment to the gospel. I know that you do not tolerate false teaching, yet I have a few things against you. But to him who overcomes, I will give the right to live in true paradise and enjoy true life and rest. Wow. How about if those words had been written to us, to our church, our assembly, our gathering? And what if they were recorded and in a thousand years' time Christians were studying those words? Now thinking to themselves, I wonder why Jesus said those particular words to the Christians in Port Macquarie in 2012. Why did Jesus have to say to the Port Prezies that uh, He is the one who holds the keys to paradise and to true life and to true rest? Scholars would debate the words, <laughs> but we don't need it explained to us, do we? because we know where we live. Uh, we live in paradise. A friend of mine lives in the inner west of Sydney. We were down at his place and we were talking about, he was asking me about where I lived and we got onto Google Google Earth and he zoomed in on Amuru Parade there at she- Shelley Beach, Port Macquarie and he said to me, mate, he said, Scott, you live in the dream. <laughs> he said to me, half the people I know in my suburb and half the people I work with, they all want to live where you live. <laughs> they want to escape from here. They want to live in Port Macquarie. family member came to visit for the first time and she only had four words to say to me about Port Macquarie. She said to me, you live in paradise. Well, <clears throat> we all know that, don't we? <laughs> because that's, uh, that's exactly why people move to uh, this particular town. Uh, they want a, a better balance in life. Young families uh, want a more connected, a more enjoyable, uh, a, a safer community by the beach in which to uh, raise their children. Uh, retirees come for the comfort and the convenience and the fact that they've read the reports from the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology that say that Port Macquarie, alongside with the place in Western Australia, has the most temperate climate in all of Australia. It's paradise. Uh, even the non-Christians, remember a few years ago, a big marketing campaign, tourism campaign for Port Macquarie was out there on the sign out there on the highway and the gateway to the town. Remember the slogan, what it said? God lives here. And so if Jesus said to us, I'm the one who holds the keys to true paradise, to true life, and to true rest, I reckon we'd understand that he's talking about us and where we live and our priorities, and we might have embraced ourselves for the rebuke that might soon follow. Friends, that's how Revelation chapters two and three is written. Revelation, as we saw last week, is a letter to seven churches. But in chapters two and three, uh, which we'll be looking at this week and next week. In chapters 2 and 3, there are individual messages to each of the seven churches. As we look at them a bit more closely, we're going to see that Jesus was in tune with them, that Jesus was connected with them, that Jesus understood who they were, where they lived, and what their issues were, such that, when they got these messages, they'd be thinking, wow, he understands us. He understands our city. He understands our church. He understands the challenges that we face and the temptations that we have to deal with. And so let's have a look at it, shall we? Now, just by way of uh, some introductory remarks, <clears throat> on your uh, service sheets there, there is a. you'll find that there is a map of the Mediterranean and the the Aegean, and uh, what was the Roman province of Asia. And what you'll see is if if you look at the map, but also have your Bibles open to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, that the messages were written in Revelation in the same order that the letter or the copies of the letter would have been delivered. Um, Each message starts by saying who it is addressed to. And so uh, if you look, for example, at chapter 2, verse 1, who does Jesus address uh, this particular message to? In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, you might have picked up from Brett's reading uh, where he uh, uh, use the word um, gathering instead of church because that's what a church is a church is a gathering it's an assembly of people um, he also use the word messenger instead of the word angel and that's because in the Bible uh, <clears throat> that's what it means <laughs> that that an angel is it's a, a Greek word which really means messenger uh, sometimes in the Bible it's a a messenger who has come from the heavenlies. For example, when Jesus was born, the shepherds out and the angels appeared and they sung praises to God and they disappeared into the heavens. Uh, on other occasions, the messenger is a human messenger, a person who is coming delivering a message, and uh, and the way that we can tell is is by the context. Now, here it's most likely that it means a human messenger. Uh, And perhaps because a messenger from Ephesus has come and collected the letter from John, who was in exile on the island of Patmos, and has taken the letter back to his church in Ephesus. And then it might be that a, 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 a messenger from Smyrna has come and taken a copy of the letter from Ephesus and taken it back to to Smyrna, to his church. And then a messenger from Pergamum has gone to Smyrna and he's brought the message back to Pergamum and so on. And so that if you compare the order of the churches, uh, as the messages as they're written for us in chapters 2 and 3, if you compare that order with the map, what you'll see is that the order that the messengers, messages are in uh, is the exact uh, route, which would be the most logical route for the passing on of the letter. And so uh, the letter originates in Patmos. It goes to Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, it, it, it goes up the coast through uh, Smyrna to Pergamum. And then down the inland road uh, from Pergamon right through uh, Thyatira and the other, town, the other cities to Laodicea, which is what was really thought of as being a frontier town for uh, uh, Roman civilization. Um, beyond uh, Laodicea were the uh, uncivilized uh, tribes and so on. Now I know it's not necessarily a profound insight um, but it does help us to understand that d- despite the unwa- unusual way that Revelation is written, that it is a real letter written to real people in real cities and real churches delivered by a real messenger. And you can see that just in the root that uh, would have been taken. Well today we'll look at the first four of the churches but uh, before we lunge into that let me say that it's worth noting that all seven messages follow the same uh, same structure now let me share with you what that structure is first of all Jesus introduces himself with a description that was already used of him so, for example, in chapter one, so for example, in uh, to the to the church in Ephesus, uh, he describes himself as being the one who uh, who, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we saw last week in chapter one that uh, that is how Jesus was referred to as being the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands, and that that meant that uh, he was walking amongst the churches. And we'll see later why that would have been important for the church in Ephesus. Because what he does is he introduces himself in a way that's already been referred to in chapter 1, but he picks up on imagery from chapter 1 that actually uh, resonates uh, with the individual church in the circumstances that they were in. Secondly, he then goes on to talk about what he likes about the church or the gathering, the assembly, uh, all their good points, the things he commends them for. Uh, all churches except for Laodicea actually doesn't have anything good to say about the church in Laodicea. Um, thirdly, he then says, well, that's what I'm happy about, but here's a few things that I'm not happy about, and he uh He rebukes them, calls upon them to repent and he does that all except for the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia. He was not unhappy with those two churches. And then finally, he promises a blessing to all who overcome or who conquer. And this word overcome and this theme of conquering uh, is uh, woven throughout the book of Revelation and we can conquer because Jesus has already conquered for us on the cross. And uh, he promises this blessing to all who overcome, and the blessing that he promises will relate to the promises of heaven that we see expressed for us more vividly in the uh, last couple of chapters of Revelation. And so what it does is it, it also shows us by the structure that what has gone before in chapter 1, and what goes afterwards, uh, <clears throat> is all integrated into these two letters, uh, that it's a cohesive piece of literature. Now, let's look at the four churches in chapter 1. First of all, <clears throat> there is the church in Ephesus. In the first century, Ephesus was a great city. Uh, it had a population of about a quarter of a million people. And uh, what made it uh, a, such a successful city, uh, you can see from the, the map of it, was because it was coastal and it had uh, a, a great natural environment for a, for a, for, for a harbour. Uh, There's a river that uh, obviously had its mouth there on the coast and uh, the river afforded for there to be a safe harbour for ships coming in from the open sea uh, in order to um, uh, to, to unload um, goods, uh, cargo, and to load up cargo and so on. For ships that were passing through from uh, from the east, from, uh, from Greece through to the Middle East and so on, they could stop over in Ephesus. And there was also that transport link that they could uh, get up to the other towns in Smyrna, Pergamum, and down through the interior. And so it was a, by the way, if you go there these days, you'll find that there's, it's a hopeless location because the river all dried up. And so now you've got this town which is kind of stranded inland a bit from the, uh, from the open sea without um, without a, a harbour. Politically, it was what was referred to as a free city, which meant that whilst it was under Rome, that it enjoyed a certain amount of independence and autonomy in terms of its government. And that was important for uh, uh, an issue that we'll see a bit later. But the greatest pride of Ephesus was not its harbor, was not its free city status, its greatest pride, the thing which it was most famous for, was a temple. Uh, A temple which was devoted to to the false goddess Artemis, A.K.A. Diana. Um, Artemis worship dominated the, uh, the 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 spiritual, the cultural, and indeed the economic life of Ephesus. Do you remember in Acts chapter seventeen when Paul and his companions were in Ephesus? They got into trouble, didn't they? Uh, they got into trouble because people were becoming Christians, and people who became Christians stopped buying idols uh, for the worship of Artemis, and that got up the nostrils of the uh, local tradesmen and their trade union that was um, manufacturing the idols. And the city actually was in an, was outraged uh, against Paul and his companions, and dragged them into a not Paul, but dragged the others into an amphitheatre and. They called out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You remember that in Acts chapter seven Acts chapter 17? Well, what it paints for us is this picture that if you were a Christian and an Ephesian, then you would have felt that Artemis and her worship was everywhere around you in, in your city. A dominated life. People would come to Ephesus because of the great temple of Artemis. And so in verse one, Jesus introduces himself by saying, I am the one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. I am the one who is truly amongst you and truly with you. And he's got some good things to say about them. They have stood far they have stood firm in the face of their context and the the face of the opposition that uh, was aroused against them that's one thing secondly they did not tolerate false teachers in verse 6 they hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans now we don't really know what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was but we know that Jesus hated their teaching and the Ephesians hated their teaching I've got to be honest with you if you hate what Jesus hates then you're on solid ground, aren't you? It's valid to hate something if it's actually dishonouring to our God. And so that's all good. And friends, it's very important for us to have that solid understanding of God's word and to not waver and to be able to reject false teaching. There's a danger, though, and the danger is that you can dot every I and you can cross every T theologically but not have a great love in your heart for Jesus. That's strange to see how that happens, but you know it happened here in verse 4. Jesus says to the Ephesians that they've lost their first love. Theologically correct, standing firm for the faith, but they lost their passion for Christ in the process. And so he warns them, if you don't repent... I'm gonna take the lampstand away from you. I'm gonna take the light that you give to Ephesus away. But in verse seven, to those who overcome this issue of truth without love, he makes a promise. It's a promise about a tree. Um, The the temple of Artemis, part of their uh, religion was that the temple provided um, asylum, it provided refuge for people who'd broken the law. that meant been people who were offside with the Romans. And uh, the, 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 the the Romans could not arrest such people very easily because of the high esteem that the worship of Artemis was held in and partly because of the free city status of, uh, of Ephesus. And just outside the temple, there was a great tree. And around that tree, lawbreakers would gather and they would find refuge and <laughs> life and to the Ephesians who repent and love Jesus first in their lives, he says, I'm going to give you the right to eat from a tree. But it's the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. The tree of life. Think Garden of Eden before the fall. Think the images of uh, heaven in Revelation uh, 22. Think the cross of Christ, the tree upon which he was cursed by God in you and me now 60 kilometers north of ephesus was smyrna it was also a big city it also had a population of a quarter of a million people smyrna was wealthy and it was adorned with um, magnificent architecture uh, both uh, in terms of its public buildings libraries and so on and also uh, multiple temples uh, in the city of uh, Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna was called, I mean, if Port Macquarie is known as, you know, where God lives, uh, Smyrna was, was called the glory of Asia. And the symbol of the city of Smyrna was a crown. Amongst its temples, there was one that was devoted to the worship of the emperor of Rome. Um, Now, Smyrna, although it was wealthy, it had a Christian uh, church in it, and the Christians were actually poor because the Christians were persecuted. They suffered. And the reason they suffered was because they refused to worship Caesar as God. And because they refused to worship Caesar as God, that brought upon them a charge of treason against empire, which was punishable by death. Uh, They were traitors. There was a Jewish community in Smyrna, a large Jewish community, but they were not persecuted for not bowing the knee to, uh, to Caesar. And the reason is this, through a a, a number of historical factors, they had done a deal with the Romans. And the deal was this, that they would not have to participate in Caesar worship or any of the other communal uh, pagan worship uh, festivals that happened on the condition that they paid a tax to help provide for the upkeep of a temple to the pagan god Jupiter in Rome. And so they purchased immunity from prosecution for not bowing the knee to Caesar. There were historical reasons as to why, which meant that that was actually forced upon them to some extent, but they agreed to it. And they hated the Christians and because of their privileged and their compromised status, they were therefore able to accuse Christians, they were able to point out to the Romans that these Christians were not bowing the knee to Caesar and therefore the Christians were being put on trial for treason, for not worshipping Caesar. And you see that in the text, that he, uh, he talks about Smyrna and uh, he talks about those who have uh, opposed them uh, in verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. Because (laughs) they might be Jews in the sense that they're direct descendants of Abraham, but they don't have the faith of Abraham. But they are in fact a synagogue of Satan. That's how he describes them. So that was what was happening there in Smyrna. And the punishment for treason was death. And so you can see why in verse 8, when Jesus introduced himself to them, he did so as the one who died and came alive again. And they would have understood. Uh, Or in verse 10, when he promised that if they are faithful even to death that they would receive a crown better than the symbol of their city, they would have understood. Or in verse 11, when he promised that whoever overcomes would not be hurt at all by the second death, they would have understood and strengthened to stay firm and not to buckle under pressure, not to bow the knee to Caesar, despite what it may cost. And we have examples of, um, of what actually happened. I mean, at this time, when Revelation was written, there was a, a young 20-year-old uh, man in Smyrna who was a Christian. His name was Polycarp. And he had actually, in his earlier days, had been nurtured as a Christian by the author of this letter, by, by John now in exile on Patmos. Polycarp, um, a few years after the revelation was written, became the leader of the Smyrna church. But many years later, as an old man in his 80s, um, he was put on trial because he remembered these words and he believed them and he put his trust in them, and he obeyed them. And so he was one who refused to bow the knee and worship Caesar, which also involved explicitly renouncing Jesus. Um, the, the the words that Polycarp spoke at his trial are recorded for us, and they're awesome. Some of them are famous words. You may have heard them before. But let me uh, share it with you because... When the judge demanded that he denied Christ listen to what Polycarp said. I quote: He said, 80 and 6 years have I now served Christ and he has never done me the least wrong how then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? 80 and 6 years he's always done the right thing by me why would I turn my back on him? And then he offered to share the gospel with the judge. (laughs) And the judge told him that, unless he repented, that he would sentence him to the fire. Polycarp answered, and I quote, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and so is distinguished, but know not the fire of the future judgment and of that eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring it on. (laughs) Bring on what you will. And then they set him on fire, alive, so that he was burnt till he was dead and crisp. But you know what? He didn't have to worry about the second death, did he? No. you, You can burn me with a fire that'll last for an hour. I've got to tell you, there's another one coming that goes for all of eternity. That's the one you need to be careful of. Powerful stuff, isn't it? And it shows the, uh, this is not what you read in the Bible, this is just immediately after the Bible was written. This is transitioning into church history. And then in verses uh, 12 to 17, we find Jesus' message to the church in Pergamum. These second, uh, the next two churches, I'll just deal with a bit more briefly. Um, how is Pergamum described? Well, in verse 13, it's described as being where Satan has his throne. Not a nice thing to be said about a place, is it? Um, Pergamum was the birthplace of Caesar worship. It was in 29 Um, BC, that uh, Caesar Augustus uh, permitted a temple to be built in Pergamum uh, in order to worship him as God. This was where it started. And Caesar worship then spread through the whole of the empire and resulted in the eventual execution of countless Christians. God only knows how many. It was Satan's home was where it all began. And these Christians had stood firm even unto death. Uh, in fact, um, it talks about um, one of their church members, Antipas, uh, I think. I think that's Thyatira. Anyway, uh, these Christians had been um, uh, remained faithful uh, even unto death. But you know what? Faithfulness is a double-edged sword. Because it it means standing up for Jesus and the truth of the gospel, yes. But it also means rejecting false things about Jesus and false things about the gospel. It's a a double-edged sword. And it was in that second area that they failed. And so Jesus warns them that if they keep on tolerating false doctrine and sin, then then he's going to come with the double-edged sword and he's going to sort it out. Um, But in verse 17, he will give two things to those who overcome. The first thing he says, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. And uh, it may be what that's saying is, I'm going to give you the true bread of life. Because in in the pagan feasts, there was special bread that was eaten as part of that worship. And he said, I'm, to, I'm not going to give you that bread. I'm going to give you the true manner of life. And he says, secondly, I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, uh, it may well be that this is an, an allusion to the stone that was used as an entry ticket into the gladiatorial battles, which um, I'm right, it is, uh, it, it is this church, uh, in Pergamum which is where perhaps their brother Antipas in verse 13 gave his life. So I'm going to give you a different white stone. It's going to have a name on it and it'll get you entry to a place where Antipas now is. What about the church in Thyatira? Uh, in verse 19, Jesus knew about their good deeds and their love and their faith and their service and their perseverance sounds like a great church doesn't it except they had embraced the false teaching of a lady who he describes as being jezebel there's some old testament he talks about old testament uh, false teachers and so on here and uh, compares them with what's going on in this particular church Um, And in terms of uh, Jezebel, well, you know, she was King Ahab's wife and she had, you know, she had lured people into false baal worship and into uh, immorality and so on. And this is what's going on uh, here in this church. There's someone like King Ahab's wife and she's luring Christians into false worship and into sexual immorality. Now, you know, I mean, these days people might say, well, that's a progressive church. I mean, you know, they're not so hard-nosed about, you know, doctrine and a bit more open to, you know, different forms of relationships. And so on. that's a progressive church. It's with an enlightened understanding of the uh, deep secrets of God. Well, in verse 27, John says, no, there's no deep secrets of God involved here. This is the deep secrets of of Satan, not God. And the people who believe this stuff, don't be fooled by them. They're not superior. They're not enlightened. They're not the, you know, they might be popular. They might be, but but in verses 26 to 29, it's the Christians who will reject that and who will overcome this temptation. They're the ones who rule. They are the ones who will rule over the nations with Jesus. Um, a few years ago, uh, I don't know if you remember this or saw it, but there was a local church here. I don't remember which one, thankfully. There was a local church here that put some ads in the paper and they described themselves as being one of Port Macquarie's great churches. You know, That was what was emboldened across the ad. One of Port Macquarie's great churches. And it made me think, um, what's a great church? What does it mean to be a great church? What makes a church truly great? And it leads to this question, what would we like Jesus to say about us if he were to write his message to the messenger of the church of Port Macquarie? What if he were to say, you live in what some people call paradise, but I know that you are looking forward to the true paradise. Because you stand firm for my name and for the truth of the gospel. You reject false teaching and you reject this worldly materialism and pleasure seeking that surrounds you every day in Port Macquarie. And you love me as first in your heart. By the way, are you loving Jesus as first in your heart? It is so easy to be doctrinally correct but to Forget what he's done for us. To forget where you came from. To, to forget the darkness that you were living in and the road that you were taking to destruction before the light of the gospel shone in your life. Do you remember that? Well, maybe you've always been taught the gospel from your parents from an early, uh, early in life. But I remember hearing the gospel for the first time I remember the joy that was so overwhelming of thinking that my sins have been forgiven and I've got a father who loves me and Jesus died for me. There's nothing more I want to do in life than to praise him and to serve him and to love him and to cherish him and to look forward to being with him forever. You know, over the years, the fire can start to get a little bit cool and we can we can get so concerned about being absolutely correct doctrinally and correct strategically and all of that sort of stuff and it's good to be but what about the fire in your belly what about your first love are you, putting, are you remembering what Jesus has done for you, is that the thing that turns you on, is that the thing that spurs you on, is that the thing which motivates you to be wanting to be living a godly life And to be treating other people in the same way that Christ has treated you. To be gracious to others. And to be praying to him and talking to him as much as you can. And hungering after his word. And just wanting to obey and honour him. Is that your first love? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus were to write to the church in Port Macquarie and saying, And guess what guys? I know that your love, your love me is first in your heart and you're passionate for me. And so to him who overcomes in Port Macquarie, I'm going to give that person the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the true paradise. That's what he promised to the Ephesians. You know what? There was a um, uh, situation where uh, these, these Christians that were reading about in these places were Christians who suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. And uh, it was a very real kind of suffering for them. And they, some of them stood firm. There was a letter that was written by a governor about 15 years after Revelation was written. I've just found it. That's why I've been sort of uh, <coughs> fumbling around. Uh, looking for it was a it was a letter that was written about 15 years after revelation by a roman governor named pliny and he wrote to the emperor who at that time was emperor trajan and he was trying to deal with this issue about what to do with the christians that were under his jurisdiction and whether or not he was obeying what the emperor really wanted to be done to these christians Let me read you part of the letter. It's really good that it's been preserved for us. After his introduction, he says, Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. He's a bureaucrat, this guy. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians, those who confessed... I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered, executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. I don't care what they believe, but stubborn, inflexible, obstinate people, they should be put to death. Friends, may we too be stubborn, inflexible, and obstinate in our love for the Lord Jesus, putting him first in our lives, refuting false doctrine, refuting sexual immorality and sin, And never, never bowing the knee to the gods of this world. It's interesting as you look at that, isn't it, that um, you can see the very real threat that uh, Christians were under. And it's no surprise, therefore, that the rest of Revelation is written in a way that if if it crossed the emperor's desk, he wouldn't necessarily understand what was being said. But the Christians would. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for preserving revelation for us and helping us to uh, see what it is that Jesus values in his people. And we pray that we would value what Jesus values. And uh, we pray, Father God, that you would grant us uh, the encouragement and the uh, perseverance that comes from the gospel that would mean that we would stick it out to the end and uh, that we would be uh, ones who would uh, inherit the great promises that uh, you have uh, promised to those who overcome. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.